Hello, and welcome to episode 107 of the Cognicast, a podcast by Cognitech Inc. about software and the people who create it. I'm your host, Craig Andera. All right, well, I'd like to mention to you operability.io. Now, this is a conference held in London, September 19th and 20th, 2016. Uh, it's going to be about DevOps. So this was brought to our attention uh, by our friend Marco Abis, who was one of the people who was initially responsible for Euroclosure. So you know he does good work. Uh, this is a conference that he's helping to run, and uh, he gave us a heads up, took a look at it. I'm like, yeah, it looks like a, a thing that our listeners might want to be aware of. So you can check that out um, at operability.io. Uh, if you're going to be in or around or can get yourself to London in mid-September. Uh, so check that out. Uh, I want to mention there's a closure bridge happening in Pittsburgh, September 9th and 10th. Uh, so as you're well aware, if you've listened to the show a bunch of times, Closure, closure Bridge is a great organization. Uh, its aim is to increase diversity within the closure community by offering free, beginner-friendly closure programming workshops for women. So check that out at closurebridge.org. You can see the list of their events there and uh, take a look at the one that's happening in Pittsburgh, September 9th and 10th. Finally, I want to mention Closure NYC. This is a user group in New York City. Uh, they are having a meetup on Wednesday, August 24th, and Nathan Mars will be speaking. Nathan's a good guy. He's been a guest on the show. He's going to be talking about um, an optimization te uh, technique called uh, inline caching. Looks pretty cool based on the description. Uh, you can read more about that at www.meetup.com slash closure hyphen NYC or search for closure NYC. Uh, looks like cool stuff. Wish I was going to be able to attend that one. Uh, that's all I got for you today, though, so we will go ahead and go on to episode 107 of the Cognicast. begin yeah yeah all right all right everybody welcome today is thursday june 23rd 2016 and this is the cognicast um i'm very pleased today to welcome as our guest a uh, developer at clubhouse.io uh ivan willig uh welcome to the show ivan thanks for having me on uh i should ask i, I hope i pronounced your name correctly i forgot to ask before the show if that's right you did yeah you got it ivan okay great well we are excited to have you on the show today ivan um you are a closurist. Uh, you have interesting things to say about it and about your company's use of uh, that technology as well as a couple others that uh, people here have heard us talk about before. Um, but before we do that, we always ask the guest a question to open the show. That question is, uh, would you please relate to us some experience of art for whatever that means to you? People have talked about concerts they've been to. They've talked about all sorts of things. We'll just throw it wide open just for you to share some artistic experience that you've had uh, and share with our audience. So what do you got for us? Artistic experience I've had. I think, uh, I, I guess when I was in school, I, I kind of had a hard time. I was one of those people that didn't do so well in school, I guess. And I think art was always for me. I actually did art as an outlet of like, because I don't know, I guess I'm not a person who follows rules very well. Well, sometimes I do follow rules, but I'm not very good at them. So uh, I felt art was a, I always felt in school like art was a space where you could kind of do what you want. And it was a little bit of freedom. It was creative. So that to me was kind of like an outlet for many years. And that was, I guess that was kind of one of my, I don't do it anymore, which is kind of weird. But uh, definitely that was kind of probably the biggest influence I've, it's had on my life as a, a kind of the act of doing it and a, a way of getting away from like, because there's not really any right and wrong answers in art. You can kind of just do stuff and try it out. And it often will not work. And you'll have to do it over again. But I found that kind of interesting. So I'm, uh, did you have a particular medium that you like to work in? Uh, I, I moved around a little bit. I used to do uh, kind of like painting, watercolors, oils. Uh, I also did colored pencils for a little while. And I also – my dad was a big – really big into photography. And I got into photography a little bit in high school. But I like it's kind of strange. And I don't really know why, but I, I do none of that now. And I, I don't really know why. Maybe it's because I have a job and a life and stuff. But 
Well, that was actually one of the things I was thinking was when you were saying it was an outlet. Um, so I'm I'm personally really interested in the idea of programming as a creative enterprise, right? Like much much like say um, painting or uh, uh, working with colored pencils, as you said. Um, so do, do you first of all do you see it that way as well? And and do you think perhaps uh, that the reason you don't do it anymore is because programming is your creative outlet? I mean, does that make any sense to you? Yeah, totally. I I think that's true. I think, yeah, there's some truth there. Uh, yeah, it's definitely, I remember when I was learning how to program, one of my professors taught me, I told me, like, you know, people think that programming is not creative. People who don't program, I say. And it's like, he's like, I find it one of the most, It's it's similar in art in some ways where you basically get to start with, not very much, and it's a lot of creativity. You get to like create again without a lot of restrictions. I mean, there are more restrictions than art, obviously, but I think that's true. I though I do, I will say that it can be more frustrating than art because hmm. there's a lot more. Uh, you know, you gotta think about what you're doing. You gotta make sure you gotta just like set up. You gotta make sure you know like what you're doing is actually correct by the compiler and like, you know, you gotta get the database set up or depending on what kind of uh, programming you're doing, you know? So yeah, I think that's maybe true. I mean, also I have a family now, so I just have less free time in general. So maybe that's it. Yeah. I can sympathize on that one. Yeah. Well, awesome. So, so I think, um, uh, as a, that's, that's a really cool, uh, introduction to you personally, but let's maybe shift over to the professional side of it. So I mentioned, that you are a developer at Clubhouse.io. Uh, um, I wonder if you wouldn't mind, uh, by way of introducing us uh, to you and your company. Sure. Uh, yeah, I'm, I'm Ivan, and I work, I'm one of the back-end engineers at Clubhouse. And um, Clubhouse is a, a project management software tool that we, we are trying to kind of achieve a balance between sophistication and ease of use. Um, I believe Clubhouse kind of came out of a frustration uh, well, I think we've all experienced at the company a frustration with current project management tools, but definitely came out of a frustration that I experienced by our two founders, Andrew, Andrew and Kurt, with like, there, there was a, an ease of use with some of, some of the tools out there are very easy to use, but they don't scale very well for large companies or even small companies necessarily. And then a lot of the other tools are very sophisticated. You can configure them. You can uh, kind of they have a lot of knobs and levers, but they become unwieldy in a different way where you have so many options that it, it just doesn't scale in large teams very well. So Clubhouse is our, our attempt to uh, try to strike a balance between that. So, yeah, so I, I was uh, looking at your website, clubhouse.io, and um, I have not used the product myself. Um, but, I mean, you know, the, one of the things I notice is that clearly somebody's paying attention to you know, at, at, the, at the, the very like minimum floor of usability, right, is does it like, does it look like something you would want to use? I mean, I know that's not the same as usability is like, but it, but it looks like a product where somebody's like, okay, yes, we're definitely paying attention to, you know, that kind of human aspect of software. But I wonder, uh, since you said you're a back-end engineer, if you could talk to us a little bit about um, the suite of technologies that you're using to implement your product. Yeah, sure. So the, um, the I work on the back end, which is a REST API. That um, So we use Clojure, and um, we also use Datomic. Datomic is our primary data store for everything. Everything goes into Datomic, essentially. And um, we use a bunch of other tools to build the REST API. Um, we are pretty heavy users of uh, Liberator, which allows us to define kind of RESTful controllers. And uh, we've kind of have, we have some kind of homegrown wrappers around Liberator, and we we've also adopted a couple patterns about how we use um, uh, Datomic in a kind of specific way that allows us to do certain things. So one of the things that we kind of focused on this goes back a little bit to what we we're talking about usability is uh, you know often when you have a lar- large number of people working on a bunch of different stories, you have uh, a bunch of different projects going on in your tool. It comes becomes hard to see what's going on. So. We spent a lot of time using uh, building this activity feed, which the goal was to try to make people be aware of and keep track of what stories they care about. And that's actually was an interesting use case of Datomic as well. So um, because we have that um, transactional history there, mm. definitely it's it's been an interesting experience. Uh, I, I don't know. I think I mentioned that earlier, which is I've been programming for a while now, but this was my first job where I was using Clojure on a day to day experience. 
a day-to-day, so uh, professionally, I guess. So that was definitely kind of a little bit of learning curve there, and it was interesting to kind of that was uh, it was a challenge for the last year, I guess. Yeah, let's actually go down that rabbit hole because I am always interested in people's you know kind of origin stories around closure. So uh, you know, you and I were talking a little bit before the show. Uh, you started out, and I, I think you said JavaScript was one of the languages, and so I'd love to hear your arc. Like, what, where, where did you start out, and what's been hard? What's been easy? What's been surprising? Those are all interesting aspects of your story to me. Yeah, I guess uh, it started out was I was working. I was I did Python and JavaScript. Although I wasn't at the very beginning, I wasn't very good at JavaScript to be honest. I didn't really understand it. Um, and uh, we, I was working at a company that no longer exists, but the primary uh, application was written in Java. And I was like, I'm never gonna get into this. This is just too much. So uh, my friend and I. He was like, and he was kind of a guy that was not super wild about Java as well. And he was also a Python, uh, Python developer. And we were thinking about, you know, like, how, how are we, how are we going to build stuff? And he's like, you know, I want to do everything in common list. And I'm like, what is common list? What are you talking about? I've never heard of this before. And then he's, and then I was like, looked up, I started learning a little about list. And then I was like, oh, well, what, let's like, I Googled like basically list for Java and Clojure was like the first thing that came up. And that's kind of how I came to it. Uh, this was, I don't know, like in 2008. And then we kind of like, he and I kind of started learning about it. And we like realized, oh, this is really cool. There's a lot of interesting ideas here. Exposed me to a lot of things that I, I hadn't been exposed to before. Um, and then, you know, eventually I moved on. And I, um, I never, we never really used Clojure at that company, which is kind of funny. It's still a Java shop to this day. But um, they, uh, we eventually I, I became a JavaScript programmer. And then finally... At this point, when I started working at Clubhouse, I, I started use I started using Clojure day to day. So that was kind of my arc, I guess. Okay, so I'm I'm always interested in what people uh, have found to be good and bad, right? Like what has been difficult for you, uh, you know, uh, what has proven to be beneficial, especially the surprising things on both of those. I mean, for instance, you know, when I came to Clojure. And maybe this is similar to your experience. I was surprised by how much the functional mindset took to shift to. That's that was that was the big challenge, and I wasn't expecting that. Uh, so, what were your surprises and pluses and minuses? Well, that that's kind of an interesting question. I do remember one thing, which is like when I was learning about. I don't actually have a CS background. I came from more of a liberal arts background, and I've slowly learned. Well, I guess I've learned some of CSS, but there was definitely some things when I was learning about like JavaScript and Python that I were unexpected to me, and that the functional mindset was actually a little more expected. And this always came to be. This was many moons ago when I was like, I don't know. I think I was trying to like see if two dictionaries were equal, so I like called equals on them, and there wasn't equal. And I'm like, wait a second, these values are the same. Why? And this is you know like the comparing by value or comparing by like a pointer reference type mm-hmm. issue. So actually, some things about that, it, when you kind of learn the functional mindset, were actually easier. But yeah, you're, you're definitely right. There are some things you have to get used to. And I think one of the, the biggest things is, well, I, I don't know. There's, there's a bunch of things. I mean, the first was this like syntax, because I had mostly a background in Python. And I was kind of like, oh, what's, what are all these like curly, or sorry, uh, parentheses here? Like, this is kind of strange. But that, I mean, I think that goes away pretty quickly if you're actually interested in learning about it because you start, like everyone says, you don't really see those anymore. You don't really care about those. And you, you learn Emacs and it, that problem just goes away. Um, there's definitely like some things I think I remember learning, which is like, you know, you don't really have a for loop. And a lot of uh, algorithms, a lot of solutions um, in the world are kind of driven by these kind of complicated for loops. I remember I was really interested into like compute. My background was kind of in mapping and cartographic stuff, and I'm very interested in like computational geometry. And a lot of these ideas in computational geometry, the solutions are presented in like Java or C. And if you try to take like a code, some piece of code, some algorithm that's written in, in Java, that's kind of very specific about how we're going through this array or whatever, and it translating it to uh, I don't know if I'm making complete sense, but translating mm-hmm. to like a closure. Like reduce or or loop or recur is not always the easiest thing. I guess one of the things I guess is is that so much of the world has this um, a kind of not even object oriented but like procedural like mu- you mutate things all the time uh, worldview that like when you try to take that to functional programming there's just not as much 
ex- even examples, really, or, or literature, I guess, um, about that. I don't know if that makes sense. Yeah, totally. I mean, people on the show have talked before about impedance mismatch between the imperative mindset and the and the, the, the more functional, if you will, approach, the, the higher level of abstraction. <laughs> so I, I, I hope you won't mind if I tell a brief story. Uh, I'll, keep it, I'll keep it quick. But no, of course. When I talked to – we used to have this thing that we would do internally that we called um, – uh, I forget what it was called exactly, something cross-training. But the idea was that we would pair up somebody from the technical side of the house, one of the developers, with somebody not uh, whose day-to-day job wasn't writing code, so maybe a project manager or whomever, mm-hmm. and just have them talk about what – Whatever, um, you know, just like have that kind of professional contact. And so one day I was paired up with our CFO, who is awesome. And, uh, you know, she does not have a technical background. She's managing our money, uh, which she does a very good job of. And, but her very first question to me was, what is programming? And I love that question, love that question. Um, just a really smart question, I think, even though it seems so basic. And one of the things I said to her was that, you know, it's about abstraction. And what is abstraction? Abstraction is, you know, if you're talking to a two-year-old, you said you have a family, right? So if you're talking to a two-year-old, maybe you're familiar with this, and you want to go to the store, you say, okay, stand up, come over here, grab your shoes, bring them to me, now sit down, now give me this foot, now give me that foot, right? And it's very directive. And you're, you're not really talking about the goal, you're talking about the steps to achieve the goal. Yep. Versus a more abstract conversation, where if I was talking to you, I'd say, hey, uh, Ivan, meet me at Safeway in half an hour. Yeah, yeah. Right. And like that, we would just go, okay, I know how to accomplish that. It's really about the goal. And so I think that there is a higher level of abstraction, which I, I believe is what you're referring to when you talk about, you know, having four loops, which is, okay, do this, then this, then this. And then there's the aspect of mutation thrown in as well, which is kind of orthogonal. But versus, you know, do this operation to every element of this collection. I think I, I, I find that to be a higher level of abstraction. Yeah, totally. And I think it, it's a much nicer world to work in. Uh, Definitely. Yes, anyone that has a two-year-old knows that they are exhausting, and that's one of the reasons, right? <laughs> you gotta, you gotta bargain with them so much. Well, there's My, that too. <laughs> yeah. But uh, yeah, yeah, you do have to go through all these kind of mundane, like kind of just simple little steps. You're like, okay, well, we gotta get your shoes on, then we gotta get your hat on, and you're just like, no, I don't want to do this anymore. <laughs> right. right. Yeah. Yeah, that we could have a whole. Maybe there's an analogy to error messages in there somewhere. Anyway. <laughs> um, okay. Great. So, so. Um, yeah, so you've been working with Clojure for a while now. I think you said it was been about a year. Well, I, I've been interested in Clojure, and I've been playing with Clojure since like 2007, 2008. Mm-hmm. But yeah, like doing Clojure every day uh, has been, one, a great experience, and two, it's been about a year now. So a year in, um, you know, so you said it's been a great experience. Is there Now that you have got a pretty good amount of uh, code under your belt – if you had to go work in another language, what things would you want to take with you? Um, oh, that's a really well. The, I mean, I think everyone knows like the REPL is pretty awesome. I, I really like Emacs. I know some people in the community think that uh, we should probably move beyond Emacs, and I agree with that. But I personally like love it, and I want to spend everything. I like I do IRC and Emacs. I want to do email. I haven't figured a good way to do that yet so i really enjoy just working in emacs and not ever having to leave it and i actually find that is one of one of the nicest experiences and you can do that in other languages of course but it, it's it works really well in closure um I, I find you know one of the things i like about it is you know it's a it's a smaller community and there's not as many libraries you know like definitely node has a huge library set but i find that most of the time um, there's a library or there's some sort of it, kind of explanation on how to solve the problems that we have to solve at Clubhouse. And most of the time it works pretty well. So I like the ecosystem around the tools and the libraries and the community. I think that's really nice. And um, it's also nice that like it, there's not like 500 different web frameworks. Um, there's like kind of this, I think this, I really like the uh, kind of, focus on building out frameworks around kind of uh, protocols, I guess, like the ring protocol, which are uh, IPI, I mean, like, you know, we don't have like one monolithic framework, really, we have a bunch of libraries that interact with ring. And so I actually really enjoy that. Uh, one of in, Py- in the Python world, you know, the, the kind of dominant web framework has always been Django. And Django is really cool. And it, there's a lot of smart people who work on it. And I really like it. But there's definitely some things where it's not quite as appropriate. Or you don't want to use it uh, for various reasons. And it's, it, it's, 
it's not as like you can't just pull it apart and use pieces of it. And so one of the things I like about uh, the closure world is you can pull things apart and use pieces here and there. Definitely, I, I've been following a long closure and there's like sometimes there's like, you know, there's been this break where we have to like, I, I feel like, you know, we're doing something one way and then there's like, oh, there's a new way and we have to like kind of move to that new way. I think that happens in all kind of programming languages um, and, and environments. So I'm not sure if that, I guess, um, I don't know what I'm saying there. I, I'm curious to get the same answer, but for a different technology. So I, I think a lot of our listeners have got some experience with Clojure. I think uh, many of them, but probably fewer have experience with Datomic. And so obviously you've built a real commercial project, uh, a product rather, on top of it, um, as have I. Um, and so I'm curious to get your take on really the same thing, right? Like a year in using this thing, what are your impressions? What have you found beneficial? What would you, you know, if you had to go build it, build something using some other technology, what would you miss, right? Yeah, like totally. all that type of stuff. Kind of what's yep. what's your arc with Datomic then? I think it's you know it, it goes. I, I went through this experience. Like I, I had been interested in Clojure, and I saw Datomic was released a couple of years ago. You know, I was like, I'm not sure if I understand what this is, and. So I, I really, you know, kind of really took a fresh look at it a year ago and I kind of went through the stage of like not really getting it. I've always used Postgres and I've used Postgres very heavily. And in fact, I've used uh, PostGIS, which is like a spatial extension to Postgres. So I, I, I kind of understood that world a little bit. And so it, there really is this kind of, uh, I don't know, I don't want to use paradigm shift, but there is a paradigm shift you have to go through. So it started out, which is like I was not really understanding how to correctly use it. And then we definitely got uh, my coworker Wit and I. We kind of really sat down and thought about a bunch of stuff, and then about how we want to use it, and, and and tried to understand like the datomic way. Because you know, I you know, with a piece of technology, I think you want to understand like what what is its opinion about the world, and like try to not fight it. I guess I don't know if that makes complete sense, mm-hmm, but mm-hmm. so we had to kind of. It, it's not that Datomic changed. It's like we had to change to Datomic a little bit. And once we started to get it, we were like, oh, wow, this is really cool. And then this allows us to do things that we could never hope to do. And then there was a stage where we're like, oh, and here are some things that uh, we wish it didn't do. <laughs> you know, And not necessarily, but like th- these, it's more like the ramification, uh, like the immutable model enables you to do so much more than you could do with just a standard like uh, SQL database. But there's also, there's, we're starting to realize that there's some ramifications of that model that we hadn't quite thought about before that are definitely problems. It's like a higher level problem in some ways. Like it's problems you would never reach if you were using Postgres. But now that we have this complete history, we have to start to address them, which is kind of interesting. And I don't, I don't know if we've really solved them. We, I think we understand some of them, but, um, but there's that. I, you know, the biggest thing is I really like um, – there's a bunch of stuff I like about Datomic. The biggest thing is that the transactions as, as data um, model is, is really nice and it's really good. And it's very it's, – it's really nice to work with. It's really nice to – you know, we get a bunch of data in the request and, and it's from like an endpoint that's like creating some object in our system. And then we validate it and we process it and we generate this transaction and then we insert it into the database and that has really worked really nicely for us. The code is very enjoyable to write to do that process. It's very easy to reason about. And it, it, I don't know, it just feels like we're doing something right. I don't know if that really makes sense. Intuitively, it seems like, okay, this is straightforward and there's not, there's not much mystery going on here. Um, the, so, uh, so just to be clear, when you, what you're, you're referring specifically to the fact that the way that you put information into Datomic is via an API oriented around data and not around exactly. building some SQL string, right? That's what you yeah, mean? Yeah, exactly. Okay, exactly. Okay. Gotcha. Yeah, yeah. Exactly. It's, it's like a, a vector that gets transacted and each vector, there's little pieces. So it's, it, it, it ends up being like we have a bunch of optional, we have optional data and we have defaults and that ends up looking really nicely because you have like a function that generates all those de- defaults or optional values for you. And it, it's very straightforward in a way that I never found uh, – something like Django's ORM to be very straightforward. It doesn't look as clear, I think. And you can also just take that function and, and run it and not actually transact anything and look at what's being generated, and it's very easy to see if that's correct or not. Um, the other thing we, we've really enjoyed working with is um, 
basically that uh, transact and query are separate, um, separate things, which we found pretty nice. Um, you know, query, uh, you know, is obviously looking for stuff in the database and then transact is its own thing. And that actually has worked out really nice for us. And um, I think that's, that makes our system a lot easier to reason about in a lot of ways. The other thing which we started using, uh, there was a talk that we saw about, um, I forget the guys, the, the, the bank in Brazil that they've built a pretty sophisticated system. And they New Bank. New Bank, thank you. And um, th one of their, that, that talk uh, was very influential about how we designed our system. So if people are looking to, uh, I think that was very helpful in, in Wit and myself's understanding about how we use Datomic. Because uh, we started adding audit information into each transaction, which is really nice because we can now annotate uh, transactions with what, you know, like who did it, uh, you know, like not just who did it, but was this generated from a user or like some sort of webhook or something happening in another system, uh, what organization they were part of, and all these other pieces of metadata that then later helps us process it, um, you know, even like is this transaction going to be of interest to a user later on, that type of stuff. It, it's like I'm not sure. It's nice because we can store that directly in Datomic, and it fits very well. Where it, I mean, we could of course do this in Postgres, I think, but it would be have to be kind of it have it would be like an afterthought. I, I don't know if that makes complete sense, but it would be something that would be kind of more external. Where like this is like you look at the transactions, you look at the audit information. Okay, this is what's happened in this transaction essentially. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it's part of the model as opposed to part of your model. Exactly. Yeah. Yep. Yeah. So that that's been um, really nice. And uh, you know, there's a uh, you know, data log is not something I knew before using Datomic, and that took a little while to understand. Um, so that so th there 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 are a couple of things that we've uh, uh, realized that you know maybe we were using wrong, we were doing wrong. You know, one of the interesting things is what was something that we did wrong originally is. Um, you know, often in a web framework, you have like at the beginning of the request, you open a transaction in, in whatever, say Postgres. At the end of the request uh, lifecycle, you close the transaction. I mean, people do this different ways, but like, you know, kind of like this is what happens in Django, perhaps. Um, so, and you can do multiple inserts into that in, throughout that like lifecycle of the request, and that's going to be in a single transaction. You know, so we were kind of originally doing multiple transacts in a a single request, and we, that's actually, I don't think that's how we were, well, I'm not sure actually if that's how you're supposed to do it, but like we, we learned that it's, that's kind of problematic, um, you know, you, what we actually, so we changed our system to try to, you know, group all the transactions, or as much as we can, we haven't been completely successful, it's like a single request kind of ge generates most of the time a single transaction that inserts into the database, um, so that was something that we, um, definitely had to learn and that was that was not something that was obvious um i think that comes from the kind of um you know coming from a traditional uh, postgres background or sql background to uh, moving to datomic yeah i know exactly what you mean and you mentioned the separation of uh, read and write as well you know transact and and query being separate and that's actually something that i also have um learned from from datomic and from closure itself frankly also separates yeah, uh, updating things from from reading things, or as Rich sometimes calls it, perception. From, yeah, exactly. From mutation. Yeah, I think it's yeah, a super so. super powerful paradigm. Yeah. Um. Uh. So I wanted to call that out. Uh. So. Uh. So that's all. That's actually great. I, you've already you've mentioned a whole bunch of things that I also uh, you know, went through as I was learning uh, various pieces of technology. Um. I just want to make sure we revisit this because you said something really interesting, and I think you touched on it, uh, which is you had to learn a bunch of stuff. I, I'll, re I'll paraphrase you as there were a bunch of aha moments you had to go through. Yeah. And I, I think you've mentioned a few of them. You know, you mentioned learning um, the, the fact that uh, uh, transactions are data, that transactions are not a thing that spans a bunch of interactions with the database, but are exactly. themselves kind of atomic interactions with the database. Were yep. there were there other things that you can think of that you know people that haven't worked with Datomic, you can warn them and say, oh, you're going to have to shift your brain in this specific way. You've mentioned a few, but if I'm wondering if you can think of any others. Yeah, there's a couple more. Um, one of the interesting things is because you know uh, data log is based on logic pro programming. Um, 
I'm probably going to say this incorrectly, but um, one of the interesting things that we discovered is that, uh, you know, so you build up these data log clauses uh, in your query and, you know, you know so you're, you're looking for some piece of information, um, some record in your database, so to speak, and you're building up these clauses that are limiting kind of, let's say it's the user object. So you say, like, give me the users with this email and bind it to uh, question, uh, uh, you know, the logic variable uh, entity ID or something like that. What's interesting is um, you, if you like miss, so we've discovered this a couple times in our queries that like if you mistype entity ID on the you know, left-hand side, if you accidentally type like, I don't know, EID and you meant it to restrict your, your, your search, your, your query, it's, what it's going to do is generate a new logic variable that's simply just not bound to anything. I, I believe this is correct mm -hmm. and maybe I'm wrong. And so that is kind of a subtle thing that it means that your query might actually return the correct results sometimes, but won't actually be correct. Um, so that's kind of an interesting thing that we discovered. Um, and that's more about like sloppiness on our part. You have to be, uh, you have to pay attention to your data log queries in a way that like, you know, if you reference, I mean, I don't know, there's not a real good comparison in SQL, but if you try to select, you know, a field out of a, a, a table that doesn't exist, it will like throw an error, for example. Um, right. So that was pretty interest that was interesting. Um the you know I think um one of the things that we've struggled with and I don't actually have a, a a correct answer for this and I don't know if we've solved this completely but um you know so Datomic stores a history of everything but sometimes you have a bug and let's say you know let's say on your user object you have like an updated at field um, and that update, for some reason in your application, that updated field, updated at, is like a timestamp. Or, or, I don't know, something else. And that doesn't get updated correctly for like three weeks. What's interesting is that bug is now going to kind of live in the history of the database. So once you, which is fine most of the time, you're not going to care about that. But once you start writing queries that go back and kind of like, are like auditing like your information, you're going to have to like take that into account. Which is uh, kind of like like an interesting problem, and Wit and I have talked about uh, my coworker Wit and I have talked about how we want to solve this. And there's a bunch of solutions out there. Uh, well, I think there's one solution, which is to like you could replay the transactions um, in Datomic, which which will allow you to go back and basically fix the history. Um, and the basic idea that I think we're trying to get at is like. Sometimes, you know, you want to do like a rebase, uh, get rebase interactive and like fix some of the transactions. Um, um, but so that's something that you kind of have to think about. And, and the other thing too, which we kind of um, didn't really consider as much because we weren't doing as much history stuff in the beginning is as you add new properties to your entities, you, you need to take that in consideration as you're writing like historical queries. So as you go back in time, if you're looking for some field on an entity and that field no longer exists, you're not going to get the results that you necessarily expect. So um, I think that's something that's also kind of similar to the, the rewriting history thing, uh, kind of similar. But um, it's something we haven't quite solved, but we've kind of learned to kind of work around, I guess. Um, yeah, um, I don't know. Yeah, I mean, I think what you're pointing out is is perfectly valid, which is that you're using a database and one of the features of that database is immutable history. Yeah, and one of the things that's true about a database with immutable history is that history is immutable. <laughs> yeah, exactly. And this, this is totally like a, this is like you know, like a problem. I'm maybe I'm not complaining about this. I'm pointing this out. This is not a problem you ever have in a normal database system because you can never do this. So this is like something that because Datomic is really interesting and it has this really cool way of storing data that like we we've been exposed to this um essentially you i mean you could i mean you can actually do this in a in a, a non-datomic database right i mean it would be this is what we mentioned before right where it's it's no longer part of yeah, the no, model yeah. it's part of your model yeah exactly and you would have the same problems and you actually mentioned you know that we we've so we've run into this a bunch right like we've we've had other customers other teams that we've worked with have said oh yeah you know we have bad history and uh I'm using air quotes around bad, right? We have yeah, we have exactly. things in our history that we wish we Weren't if we knew everything exactly. Yeah, yeah. If only I'd known now what I know then. And and you know yeah. we have a couple answers to that, right? One is one is well, you you did say it, right? And in fact, if one of the if you believe that one of the benefits is 
you know, a record of what you actually said, well, that's what you actually said. Yeah, totally. Um, no, you made this mistake, guys. <laughs> right. And, and, and remembering your mistakes is, is good. And, you know, so like you mentioned yourself, Git, right? Like we don't, when we fix a bug, we don't try to uh, necessarily go back into Git history and erase the commit where the bug occurred. Right. No, we replace it. That's right. We overwrite it. We say, well, uh, well, I, I got smarter, and here's here's the new smarter. But, but you know, there there certainly are have been times where, for whatever reason, people have said, um, we need we need to have a different history. And as you mentioned, it is possible to address that. My colleague Stuart Sierra likes to call the process of um, taking all of the data out of a datomic database and putting it into another database with an alternate history as decanting, which is a word that I I kind of like. <laughs> Um, can like what you do with wine. Exactly. Yeah, you yeah. can. Yeah, this is the same idea, right? We're going to leave the the dregs behind. Now, we, you know, we are when we have a conversation with people about this, we're always careful to say, you know, be sure this is what you want, and that, and you're not going this direction because of what you're used to. Really consider whether the implications here are um, acceptable. But uh, but it is an option at least. Yeah. Yeah. No. It's it's def- and, and sometimes you know it, it's for small things that don't really matter, and maybe we don't want to do this for. Um, but yeah, it, it's it's definitely it's not it's 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 not something that we run into like the the application because the application mostly uses like the state of the world as of a right now, mm-hmm. and we. But it's sometimes it's more of like when we write custom queries to go look back at like what did this like what did this organization like when was this organization created and like. What was their kind of like, you know, how much did they do in the first week? We have to think about that more. So, uh, yeah. So I, I actually, I would love to talk a bit about um, specifics about how you're using uh, Clojure, Datomic, whatever else you'd like to mention in your product. I mean, I imagine, you know, given that you're trying to solve a non-trivial uh, real-world problem, right, project management, yeah, that you've come had to come up with solutions to hard problems and that those solutions were interesting. Um, so I'm wondering if you wouldn't mind sharing one or two examples of things you ran up against and how you decided to model them. And again, I think, um, you know, uh, I think maybe the datomic side of things is probably a little bit more interesting given the state of the world right now. Um, but whatever you think is cool, I'd love to hear a bit about your app. Uh, yeah, I think, um, so I mean, like like I mentioned, one of the one of the decisions we made um, to well, this is a this is another interesting thing about Datomic, I guess, which is, you know, in Datomic we have um, entities with attributes attached to them, right? Um, but the entities themselves don't really have a type, right? Like in a in a normal SQL database, this is another one of the kind of I think like paradigm shifts you have to go through when you're using Datomic. So you know, in, in your uh, normal uh, relational database, you have like a, a table called users, right? But there really isn't quite the same equivalent. I, I this is my understanding. Correct me if I'm wrong, please. But there's never the equivalent of like a, a, a users table. You have a bunch of entities that have a bunch of attributes that m- resemble a, a user entity, essentially. Um, so what's interesting is uh, when we want to translate that to the front-end code, we have to kind of, in some ways, present that to them as if there is like a user type. Not exactly that, but and this gets back to uh, specifically what we were working on with the activity feed. So um, what's interesting, we had to solve this problem, which is like there's a transaction and it's going to have a bunch of datums, and those datums are going to re- represent um, a new entity and a bunch of like facts about that entity. But then we kind of want to say, okay, user Ivan created this story with this field, right? So uh, one of the things that we did is we annotated the transactions with uh, uh, kind of a field that t- would allow us to quickly query for those in real time later on and say, okay, in this transaction, this object or objects were created. Um, and that allowed us to kind of, uh, it made it simpler to present these uh, transactions to the front end in a processed way that kind of made, that, that would look like something that you would recognize. Um, and, you know, and, and some could say like, well, maybe you shouldn't have done that, which is maybe true. Maybe that wasn't the correct solution. But, uh, you know, it, it, uh, the front end uses kind of more of a standard M- MVC model, um, model, model controller view 
um, worldview, I guess you would say. So we kind of wanted to present them like this story was created, this epic was created, um, or this project, whatever. Um, so that was one solution we did. Um, and that actually was, has some interesting ramifications about like kind of analytics about like, you know, you can see, uh, you know, very broadly, very quickly what people are doing. Um, one of the things we found was that, um, looking at, you know, cause you can go back and you can say like for this time range, give me these transactions, but, um, loading the actual transactional data is actually is, is not super fast. So um, we, we can write faster queries that use this, uh, this field that tells us what were created and deleted and it allows us to look at activity at a high level. Um, you know, I think one of the, we also, I mean, I don't know if we've solved hard problems. We've also solved like some mundane problems. Like uh, we're pretty heavy users of uh, schema and so we we use uh, Liberator to define our controllers, and we use Schema to validate our inputs. And that that was something that because we had originally um, kind of we were doing validation kind of in different places, like kind of like we were doing transactions in different places. So we kind of I don't know if this is the right word for it, but we kind of moved our validation more to the edge, and we did more consistently. Like you know, if you give us an object that doesn't match what we expect you to, like this is kind of normal stuff will return like a 400 and stuff. I think one of the, I don't know, one of the more interesting things though is that, and I don't, and maybe this is my ignorance of kind of how RESTful APIs work, but you know, we, we always have this kind of strange problem that Wit and I have to solve, which is like, you're, if you're creating this object and there's a bunch of relational data in it, because that's one of the cool things about the atomic, it's relational. So let's say, you know, we, we have projects which are kind of like high level buckets of stories. And um, you try to create like a story that's in a project that doesn't exist. Like, what should be the response code? So, one of the interesting things is we've really tried to leverage uh, Liberator's uh, kind of um, they have that decision graph model to return like error codes that are are useful. And learning uh, Liberator's kind of decision model, it it's pretty like there's a lot in there. So we don't use all of it, of course. But um, it was kind of a big step for that allowed us to build kind of a bunch of endpoints more quickly essentially and and, and do it more consistently I, I think that was a, a big part of, of of what we were um working on now do you find um that you are making use of those fine-grained uh http status codes on the client to make different decisions in other words are you distinguishing between a 401 and a 403 or whatever like are you are you actually using that to make smart decisions in the client? Uh, yes and no. So um, I kind of are, yeah, we are using them in, in some places. I don't think we've been, um, it's not comp complete. So I think the goal is one day we will use those to do, all, make smart decisions. But um, one of the things uh, that we're trying to do at Clubhouse is more than just, you know, find that balance between ease of use. We also wanted to build like a nice uh, API that, people could build stuff on top of our system without us having to ask us. So Wit and I have spent a lot of time trying to build an API uh, that would actually like tell you what you did wrong and help you like provide sensible error codes, tell you, you know, you gave me a, an int and I expected a string and so this is the problem and this is the key that you screwed up on. So um, I don't know, I mean, I guess maybe we didn't have to do that, but that was something that uh, we felt kind of strongly about um, just for... I mean, we were having to do those checks anyway to, for our own consistency, check, you know, like, because we don't want to, I mean, you know, if you try to create a story with a project that doesn't exist, that's going to be a null and Datomic's going to explode or something, other, other part of your system is going to explode. So we, we kind of wanted to make sure that the, um, there wasn't like a, I don't know how to say that exactly, I don't know how to articulate exactly, but we wanted to make sure that all of that knowledge that, and those checks that we did were exposed to the, the front end or, or to any other client. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, you really, if I can put words in your mouth a little bit, it's you need to have something that programs can act on and not just a string that a developer can look at and maybe understand. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, yeah makes sense. Well, cool. So um, I want to um, actually circle around to a different topic uh, because uh, you said something that was, to me, just absolutely fascinating. I mentioned it briefly, this balance between usability and power. Um, and I... I, I want to come back to that because I want to make sure we get to it. Um, and I think, you know, I suspect it's something that you and your team have, been, have spent at least some time thinking about. Um, first of all, I, w I will go so far as to say, uh, 
you probably do not believe that it is a straight-up trade-off, that things that are more usable are necessarily less powerful and, and vice versa. Um, but I think that there is maybe something in there worth unpacking. Uh, so I'm curious to get your thoughts on that whole idea of usability and the idea of power and how they interrelate, if at all. Uh-oh, now you've, like, put me on the spot. Huh? <laughs> well, you know, I mean, I think, you know, I it just seems like uh, you, you, yeah, I, I am. I'm curious to get your thoughts. So I am, I am putting you on the spot, sir. Yeah, I, I think that's, that's something that we, like, struggle with a lot in, in tools and software, I think, right? Like, this is not an, an uncommon problem. And I don't know if I can answer this. So uh, that there, like, I get to get, I get to, like, duck out of the question a little bit. Of course. <laughs> but, uh, you know, I think it's, it's a question of, like, for who, right? Like, or whom, I guess. I don't know how to speak English correctly. But, um, like, you know, I think we have different people we're trying to build our product for. And, and, and one of the things that we wanted to do was to make it so most developers I know, like, hate having to, like, tell people what they've done and then, like, put it into some system, right? So one of the things that uh, we work on a lot is to try to drive and record what happens in GitHub in Clubhouse. So our interface, your interface as an engineer of interacting with Clubhouse and like saying like, I'm working on this story and like it's ready for, it's in development, it's ready for review and then I deployed it is through like GitHub and Git actually. So that kind of is, uh, we spent a bunch of work integrating with GitHub and so you can like, it, it, we do it based on like branch naming. So like if you create a branch with a certain pattern, um, you'll get uh, the branch will automatically show up in Clubhouse, and you'll like and then actions you take with that branch will actually drive the story across the uh, Kanban board or whatever. Um, but so I don't know if that answers partly one of your questions. So for engineers, for example, I think that makes Clubhouse uh, easier to use. I don't know. Um, the the other thing is like I think. With a lot of project management tools that I've observed that are you can do a lot of it's hard because you can do a lot of different you can do a lot of different things with it, but it ends up being like a little unwieldy so um what we've tried to uh, i don't know how to answer this exactly, but what we've tried to do is you you've brought up um this idea of introducing features that are aimed at um smoothing a road right like you know that a lot of people are going to are going to choose to have branches those branches are going to be in github they're going to take certain a, uh, avenues or yep. take certain actions on those branches you're like oh well let's let's use that knowledge and use it to do work that they are going to do anyway to move exactly. a story through a, a workflow so i guess the question i have for you is then okay given it a feature like that where where you've kind of you know decided to Pave the cow paths is not quite the right analogy, but I think you see what I'm getting at. Do, what, what do we uh, – do we give up anything uh, by doing that? I mean so you could imagine – so we'll go ahead and pick on the 800-pound you know, gorilla, Jira, right? Yeah, I yeah. wasn't going to say it, but – Yeah, you know, I know, and, and I, you rightly should not, right? I think, um, uh, I think it's, it shows a great amount of um, uh, taste and uh, good behavior when people – speak about facts rather than picking on um, their competitors. You haven't done it, but I, I will <laughs> for you. But I'll take, I'll take Jira as an example where you can get it to do anything. Um, but, you know, um, as a result, um, I might have to do a bunch more dance steps. And so that's kind of the, the, the trade-off I'm talking about is but, – but how do you well, – So that, that's the idea with the GitHub integration. I guess this is just one example of our approach, I think. But sure. like – because, like, as you say, like, people are doing this anyway, and there is this, like, you know, you, you are moving things into different states. Like, the, the idea of, like, having some tool outside of your uh, version control system that manages these stories is that, like, other people can have insight into what you're doing. So, like, like sales and product and everyone can see, like, okay, so Ivan's doing this and working on that. So, I think um, what that, what the nice part about this is that it, it still does that, but... I mean, I don't really have to do anything different in my day-to-day -day life as an engineer to get those stories to move across, and other people can see them move across, and everyone can see, like, oh, hey, look at this. Uh, this story, which was estimated at two points, uh, was, uh, you know, 5,000 lines of 
diffs. So maybe it was more than a two-point story, you know, that type of. And um, I think, you know, definitely, I don't know if we're quite there, but I think what's interesting is we can start doing some stuff with that information, like saying, hey, like this story is like huge and it's like five branches and maybe this needs to be broken into multiple stories. Obviously, we're not there yet, but we're starting to get the information so we can kind of get insight into that at least. Hmm. Yeah, it's interesting. I think uh, what I'm what I'm taking away from this is that, you know, no surprise. Uh, once again, we've discovered that by taking the problem apart and focusing on what are you really trying to do, <laughs> yeah, that there's win in that. So, like, I, I'm hearing you say, um, well, uh, you know, looking at it, it's you're not actually trying to move a card right from column A to column B. That's not the goal. The goal is to provide visibility into what's exactly. going on. And so if we can find a way to do that, it doesn't really matter if it's a developer dragging a card between columns or committing to a branch. And if, and if they're going to commit to the branch anyway, then let's not make them do other work that's equivalent given the goal that we've thought about underlying the real problem. Yeah, exactly. Hmm. And, and, and that's, that's, I mean, that's, and, and there's a whole bunch of other stuff we've done too. Like I think uh, Andrew Childs is the front kind of like the lead guy on the front end, and I think he's, I mean, he's done other things which work really hard to like make a tool with a lot of knobs and levers where you can configure things, but you know, like make it look nice and make it so it's easy to find all those different pieces. Which I think, it, and some of these tools, a, hard, a huge problem is that like you have, there's like places where stuff goes to hide. Kind of, I don't know if that makes complete sense. So like that's that's a that's a slightly different issue, but yeah, I, I think you know, and, and and that's part of the idea of building a, a a kind of API that's public that people can build more tools into. Like we haven't quite got to the uh, deploy. Oh, someone's at my door. I'm sorry. All right, uh, we're back. Had to take a quick break there for a second, but I, Ivan, you were saying, please continue. So yeah, so I mean, I think that's one of the reasons why Wit and I uh, focused on building an API where anyone could kind of build integrations to. So you could, um, part, part of the story that we haven't completed yet um, is that like when you finish a story, you open a pull request, you close the, close the pull request, it gets moved into done, and then the story gets deployed, like you want to have that happen automatically. So we we hoping that, and we're going to work on this at some point too, but that, so that, that story can travel across the Kanban board the whole way without having to have, you don't actually have to drag it there because you're already taking these actions. We just, you just need, we just need to build the integrations to drive those. And that's nice because then you have a record of that associated with the story. The story explains in written English, like what you're trying to accomplish. You have kind of rather than, you know, Oh, I finished this and I forgot to move it into the done state for like a week, you have a very accurate history of like, okay, this is when we started it. These were the commits that started this story. This is when they merged that pull request. And then this is when they deployed it. So, you know, I think that's, that's one of many things we're trying to do. Hmm. That sounds very cool. I, I think it is. Uh, no, I mean, I was, like I say, I, I have not used the product, but uh, after talking to you, um, and, you know, of course, I'm a, I'm a big tech fan. I know that you're using neat technologies in the back end, um, uh, you know, makes me want to use it more. And, and I think, too, um, you know, my take on things is that this sort of thing is really needed. Uh, anyway, we could go there, but I think maybe we'll save that for some other time. Um, I want to um, make sure that since, uh, you know, you're a busy person, you're trying to develop this product, I'm, uh, I don't want to keep you too long, but I want to make sure that we clear any space that we need to here to talk about um, anything else that you'd like to uh, discuss today. And, and, you know, if you don't have anything right now, then that's cool. I think we should have you back on again in, uh, in a while, see how it's gone, see how, you know, how your, uh, your knowledge of closure and datomic has continued to expand. Always fascinated to hear how people have come to understand these technologies better. But, uh, uh, but like I said, that's for another time. Um, but this time, um, is there anything else you'd uh, you'd like to talk about today before we start to wrap it up? Uh, I guess not really. I I guess you know I just maybe I have to thank you to the closure community because I've been in it in various forums for a while now, and it's kind of like a nice group of intelligent people, and it's I've really enjoyed kind of uh, learning a lot. I mean, I feel like my journey with closure has been kind of like uh, understanding so much about uh, even like computer science on some level. And so I think that's been a really interesting and 
it's been a nice, uh, I don't know, it's a nice language and it's like a nice group of people, it seems like. So I, I really appreciate that, actually. I totally uh, agree with you. I've had the same experience. It is really a wonderful, uh, I mean, it's, you know, it's, it's hard. It's a sort of amorphous internet-based thing, but at the same time. Which is true, yeah. <laughs> at the same time, like, there are a extremely large number of people who are just awesome. And I've learned, I've learned a lot, too. It's, it's good stuff. Yeah. Well, cool. Well, Ivan, I, uh, you know, it's been really interesting to talk to you. Just so fascinating to me to kind of see how things have gone. I mean, in the old days, gosh, this podcast has been going for five years now. And, uh, you know, it, it, we, we've, I, I don't think I've ever known everyone that was doing closure. Like, I haven't been in it that long. I've been in it since, you know, roughly around the same time you were when it was a pretty small thing. But there was never a point where I knew absolutely everyone that was doing uh, closure in the world. But it is definitely the case that over the five years we've been doing this podcast, the number of times where we where we say, oh, we should talk to that person, and they're doing something that I just hadn't been aware of has gone way up. And I think um, that's because there's just a lot of people now doing interesting work using these technologies, yourself included. So always super fun for me to hear about uh, one more of them, and uh, that was no exception today. So um, I will thank you a ton for coming on. But, of course, before we really sign off, uh, we're going to ask you one more question. And uh, this is the question about advice. So uh, we always ask our guests to share a little bit of advice. That advice could be technical. It could be non-technical, which it often is. It can really be anything. It's any kind of piece of advice you'd like to share with us. So what would you like to uh, uh, share with our audience today? Uh, I'm not sure. I think... uh... For me, uh, closure has been like I just mentioned, kind of a uh, down the rabbit hole, and uh, I've kind of not held back, and that's been a really great experience for me. So I, you know, sometimes when you definitely when I first started, there were so many foreign concepts, so many words I had to look up and under, try to understand, and uh, I kind of never looked back, and I just kind of I don't know, just let it like kind of take over what I was obsessed with, and I don't know, it's been kind of fun. So uh, I guess just, I don't know. I don't know if that's really advice, to be honest. Oh, well, be, be like Ivan in that regard, I think, is good advice. <sighs> no, I mean, embrace it, really. Like, you know, follow your, follow your obsession. Go ahead and see how far you can take it, I think, is, is fantastic advice. Yeah, actually, I mean, and that is, it goes to what I think my friend Rob once told me, which is like, you know, it, we, we get in these arguments about, you know, what's best and what's, uh, like, what's the best way to program. There's a lot of, like, not in this community necessarily, but definitely on the internet. And my friend Rob was always like, you know, just let people do what they want because they're going to get obsessed with it and they're going to be like really into it and really kind of care about it if you force them to do something, learn, do use some language or some tool set that they don't like, they're kind of going to do it begrudgingly. And that's, I don't know how to make programmers do that. I mean, I think it's like programming is such a kind of mentally intense thing that you really have to kind of embrace it. That's what I found personally. I don't know. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I think you're right. I mean, I think one of the things that, that uh, a lot of people talk about when they talk about hiring and they talk about the teams they want to work on, the, the word that comes up over, over and over again is passion. Yeah. And how do you make somebody passionate for something they can't stand? Yeah, you can't, you can't do it. So, and, and I don't know if that's a good thing, actually. Like, I'm not sure if that, you know, is it is it great that we have to be passionate about it? But it feels like we do. I don't know. Yeah, and I know what you mean. Uh, but it's certainly true. And so learning to work within that constraint is is, is wisdom, right? Yeah, I yeah. guess so. Yeah. yeah. All right. Cool. Well, Ivan, thank you so much for taking the time to come on and talk to us today about your experience with Closure and Atomic and about the interesting work you're doing at, at uh, Clubhouse. I really wish you a ton of luck. I mean, it looks like you've made a great start. Um, looking forward to um, what I'm really looking forward to is a project where I get assigned to the project and they say, "Oh, our project management tool is Clubhouse," and we'll be like, "Oh yeah, great." Uh, it hasn't happened yet, but um, I'm I'm looking forward to, to the the day sometime soon when that'll happen, and I'll be like, "I know that guy. This is good stuff." So, uh, but anyway, certainly thank you for coming on and talking to us today. It's been really fun uh, having that conversation with you. So appreciate it. Yeah, thanks for having me on. I appreciate it. Oh, not at all. We'll have you back sometime before too terribly long. But for now, we will go ahead and sign off. This has been the Cognicast.
You have been listening to the Cognicast. The Cognicast is a production of Cognitech Inc. Cognitech are the makers of Datomic, and we provide consulting services around it, closure, and a host of other technologies to businesses ranging from the smallest startups to the Fortune 50. You can find us on the web at Cognitech.com and on Twitter at Cognitech. You can subscribe to the Cognicast, listen to past episodes, and view cover art, show notes, and episode transcripts at our home on the web, Cognitech.com slash podcast. You can contact the show by tweeting at Cognicast or by emailing us at podcast at Cognitech.com. Our guest today was Ivan Willig on Twitter at Control C Meta P, C-O-N-T-R-O-L-C-M-E-T-A-P. Episode cover art is by Michael Parento. Audio production by Russ Olson and Damian Mack. The Cognicast is produced by Kim Foster. Our theme music is Thumbs Up for Rock and Roll by Kill the Noise with Feed Me. I'm your host, Craig Andera. Thanks for listening. Mm-hmm.